of the great Horologion. O Christ, the true light, who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, that in it we may behold the unapproachable light, and guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments by the intercessions of thine all-immaculate mother and of all thy saints. Amen. So the, the end of this prayer, we have uh, a formulaic sentence. By the intercessions of thine all-immaculate mother and of all thy saints. Right? This is an ancient, it's an ancient practice. Um, the, um, the oldest prayer to the Theotokos is called the, in English, I'm going to try to find it here. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't think of bringing it. Um, it's called the Subtum Praesidium, Ipotensines Plachnian. That's the oldest prayer um, that we have that's, that's recorded. There may have been older ones that this is modeled after uh, to the Theotokos. Um, and it dates from uh, perhaps as early as the second century, um, uh, most likely the third century. And the Greek text is probably familiar to us uh, if we attend the services during Great Lent, church services during Great Lent. And the non-liturgical English translation uh, in the prayer books and in the triodion that we use in our churches, the translation will probably be a little different. Beneath your compassion, we take refuge, O Theotokos. Do not despise our petitions in time of trouble, but rescue us from dangers, only pure one, only blessed one. That prayer is very ancient, as I said, and it is, um, it, it gives us uh, an important witness to the importance of the Theotokos in the um, liturgical life of the ancient church, um, but also in the spiritual life of the ancient church. And uh, in the way that ancient Christians related to the, to the Theotokos, uh, liturgically, of course, it's a hymn that we're, we're not sure exactly how it fits into the liturgy of the early church. Um, but we do know, based on what's written in it, that the Theotokos, early Christians uh, knew and believed that the Theotokos had the power to intercede for us and to even save us from dangers through her intercession. Uh, and there were manifold dangers, of course, to early Christians. The manifold danger, dangers were, of course, persecution, uh, foreign invasion, which affected Christians and pagans alike, uh, but also spiritual temptations, the temptations of demons and the temptations uh, from our logismi, our thoughts. Uh, and the Theotokos, of course, played important, not played, of course, that's a metaphor, right? Uh, the Theotokos has an important role in all three of those uh, uh, aspects of our lives. Um, when Constantinople was founded as the capital of the Roman Empire, of course, it was the Greek city of Byzantium, refounded, um, uh, rebuilt in the 320s, and then in the early 330s, refounded as the capital of the Roman Empire, the new Rome. The Theotokos became the protector or protectress of that city. The Theotokos, was, her presence was felt throughout the city to the extent that it's possible also to call Constantinople Theotokopolis, especially as the city began to acquire the various relics of the Theotokos. And of course, we know that, that Our Lady uh, ascended into heaven. Uh, however, she did leave us, leave us other types of relics. So we don't have her body, but we have other types of relics, in particular, her clothing. Um, uh, that were collected by the pious emperors over the centuries and uh, was one of the ways that uh, Constantinople became uh, really a, a treasure city of various relics uh, connected to the passion of our Lord 
and to the Theotokos, and of course of other saints as well. And the Holy Apostles, we know that St. Constantine built the Church of the Holy Apostles in order to collect all the relics of the Holy Apostles and, and bury them next to himself. Um, so that's the Theotokos protecting the polity, right? The Theotokos protecting us during persecutions, we see in the, very, in the lives of various saints. Um, it, it, perhaps the, the great martyr Catherine, right? The, the, scene, the episode in her life is uh, a very important um, uh, example of how the Theotokos even helped the martyrs. Um, but later with the expansion of Orthodox monasticism, the monks, the Orthodox monks in particular, um, turned to, to the Theotokos for, their, for help in their battles with their passions and with demons. And especially in subsequent centuries, um, in the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries, where we have many, uh, liturgical poetry written by prominent monks, saying St. John of Damascus, for example, the Theotokos plays an important role in uh, our spiritual life, granting us release from the passions, beating back demons in the same way that she beat back invading armies from and protected the city of Constantinople, she protects the soul, the souls of Christians from the attacks of the demons uh, and from the logismi that the demons uh, use to fight us. Um, and so the Theotokos also grants grace and even uh, grants the grace of the, un of the vision of the uncreated light. And the, perhaps the most magnificent of all um, hagiographical scenes of the Theotokos where we, we encounter in the lives of the saints is the life of St. Maximus Kapsokalivitis, who is a, um, a, an Athenite saint of the 14th century who had a vision of the Theotokos at the top of Mount Athos. She was standing right at the top of Mount Athos and the vision lasted many days and the entire area was filled with myrrh and, and he, of course he saw her in the eternal uncreated light of God. So the Theotokos has an important role historically, and all, but also uh, actually in our lives. The first chapters of the book, the biography of the Theotokos, the, the life of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, deal with, uh, cover her conception and her nativity. Chapter one is entitled, uh, The Conception, the Righteous Anna of the, by the Righteous Anna of the Virgin Mary which is celebrated next week, December 9th um, on the old calendar and the Nativity of the Virgin Mary, which of course is the 8th of September. So uh, our starting this chapter this week is very, is providential uh, and it's very uh, appropriate. Um, so since we're starting from the beginning, I, th I thought about bringing up one of the uh, something that St. Nicodemus says. St. Nicodemus, of course, is a saint of the 18th century. Um, and most famously, St. Nicodemus was the editor of the compiler of the Philokalia. He was a compiler of many things. He also wrote a commentary of the uh, canons of the Ecumenical Councils, known as the Pidalio, where he provided the canons and also commented on them. Uh, provided footnotes, historical notes, and things like that. Um, St. Nicodemus also wrote a book called, or compiled rather, a book called the Theotokarion, which has a canon to the Theotokos written by multiple saints for every day of the week um, over the eight tones, right? The eight tones of the church, of, the, of, the, of church music. So uh, he has... It's a cycle of, it goes through the same cycle as the Octoichos, as the Paracliticii. Um, and the, some of the canons, of course, are written by saints that we know that are very famous, like St. John of Damascus. Other saints that are less famous or less well-known, St. John of Chaiton, um, uh, is, is, and some of them are, are mentioned and are used by our author here. Um, Nicolaos Kataskepinos, 
Panasios of Constantinople, Georgios of Nicomedia, St. Photios of Constantinople, who of course is well known, not for his poetry necessarily, but for his policies as a patriarch and his theology against the, um, the Filioque. Um, and uh, St. Nicodemus mentions that the Theotokos is the purpose of creation. All of creation, he says, was created for, Theot for the Theotokos. All the visible universe, uh, the Garden of Eden, the human race, um, everything that all of reality, as we know it, especially physical reality, but the, the merging of physical and spiritual reality in the human being is created for the Theotokos because the purpose of the Theotokos is the incarnation of God. So the whole world is the garden of the Theotokos and the, and the Theotokos, of course, is the place, the, the person through whom the, the, the word of God becomes flesh. Um, and St. Nicodemus got into a little debate about that because there were monks in his and other theologians in his era that um, started to debate whether God would have incarnated had Adam and Eve not fallen. Uh, it's an, uh, a question that we don't need to consider because it's contrary to fact. And of course, God is has providence and he foresees everything. He knows everything ahead of time. And he decided to create us knowing that, knowing that we would fall knowing that he would actually die on the cross for us. Um, so the, the question of whether we would have fallen or not is not relevant at all as a theological question. It's a contrary to fact question. Um, but St. Nicodemus is right on when he says that the Theotokos is the flower of creation, the, the most exalted of all creatures. Um, and especially the flower of the human race. If, if all creation, if the flower of creation is the human race, let's say it that way, then the Theotokos is the flower and the most beautiful flower of the human race. So from the beginning, the, the, the theology of the Theotokos covers all of, you know, from, the, from, from creation uh, to of the world to the creation of humanity, and then the plan for the salvation of, crea uh, of humanity, because the St. Gregory Palamas teaches that the Theotokos is also the purpose of the Old Testament and the purpose of Israel because Israel is the nation that was the last nation on earth to believe in the true God. They were the church of the Old Testament, the, gather, the gathering, the assembly of all the people who still worshipped the true God, the one true God. Of course, they had their temptations and they had their struggles with that because they were influenced by their neighbors to be to adopt, to worship pagan gods, that is demons. Um, but but Israel was the last nation, and the the whole um, ritual of the Old Testament church was, of course, a whole encoded prophecy uh, about the identity of the Messiah and about the identity of his mother, right? Um, and uh, beyond that, the whole genealogy of the kings of the Old Testament were all a preparation for the coming of Christ, thus a preparation for the Theotokos. So the Theotokos is at the end of this, this centuries-long, millennia-long preparation for God preparing to come and become to come to us to become a man, God preparing to save us. Um, and so the, the the story of the Theotokos, in other words, extends even before her conception. And a lot of the hymnography that's included in this chapter um, uh, bears that out. Um, an example with the, well, the example I think is, is from the Nativity of the Theotokos. 
you find an example of a hymn. Or the or the entrance of the Theotokos, right? The that the, the talks about the the, the beginning of the the, the Evlakia, um, God's goodwill towards human beings, right? Um, so theology is is summarized. All of Orthodox theology is summarized in the Theotokos, in the doctrine of the Theotokos. Also, anthropology. Anthropology is the, the doctrine, the teaching of, of uh, you know, of what, it, what human nature is, definition of human nature. Uh, that's also summarized in the Theotokos. Uh, notice that we have a feast of the conception. And it, this isn't the only feast of the conception. There's also the conception of St. John. Uh, and of course, there's a conception of the of the of our Lord, which is also known as the Annunciation, right? But that, of course, that's an immaculate conception. That is the one true immaculate conception, of the conception of our Lord, seedlessly, through the Holy Spirit. Um, with Saint John and the Theotokos, of course, we have natural conception that occurs. Uh, but the fact that the Orthodox Church celebrates the conception of the Virgin Mary by the righteous Anna, um, I think is directly re relevant to many of the debates that we're having today in our society. Right? That, in fact, life starts at conception. That human beings come into existence at their conception. That they don't exist uh, as an organ or, or a, a, a body part of their mother, uh, until they're born, but in fact are independent individuals. And we think about this, well, not independent in the literal sense, in the, but independent in the sense of uh, distinct, distinct individuals. Uh, the beauty of this, how one life encapsulates another life, uh, how one person's body is an entire world for, someone, for another person, right? The relationship between mother and child is the, is the closest relationship. It's the relationship of all relationships, right? It's on the basis of that relationship that human beings are even capable of, of having other relationships, of, of, of friendship, of love, of loyalty, um, even ascending up towards the, 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 the highest spiritual form of love, which is agape, selfless love, that St. Paul talks about. Um, all of that, the seeds of all of that, the, our ability to have, to, to manifest that, those, type, those other types of love, start from our relationship with our mother in the conception of the one person inside the other. So there's a perichoresis. Perichoresis is an interpenetration. There's a child, a child inside. This is something that, of course, we study in school. We all know this, obviously, when we study in, in school and we just take it as a fact. But then think about Think about the ramifications of this. Um, God's providence, God's providence arranged these things in, a, in this particular way. For, so we can learn this from the life of the Theotokos. She had particular ancestors in a particular order. And of course, in a nat, from a naturalistic perspective, this is normal. Of course, she had specific ancestors, and they came in a specific order. Um, but we understand this in the, from a theological perspective as being arranged so by the will of God, by the providence of God. For us, for our particular salvation, for the Theotokos, for everyone's particular salvation, because what, she, what happened in her has consequences for all of humanity across all time. So this is a great thing. Um, the way that God has chosen um, for human beings to be propagated, right? The, those, those, through these relationships that are ordered in a way that brings our salvation, that facilitates our salvation, 
We're brought into this world in order to be with God and everything that is, everything is ordained and arranged in that direction. Of course, what we do with it is a different question, right? How we, um, how we uh, uh, deal with and how we manage the gift that God has given us. Um, and of course, again, back to the question of conception. Conception starts or rather, life starts at the moment of conception. There are two um, theologumena, or theories, perhaps we might call them, about how human beings are. Um, obviously, with the body, we know that the body is a result of the merging of uh, the, the, uh, the, the genetic information from the father and the mother. Um, some holy fathers say that the soul actually comes to the body later. Um, other holy fathers say that the soul um, comes independent of this merging. And then other holy fathers say that the soul is actually a product of the merging of the soul of the, fa of the father and the mother. Right? So we have this, in the same way that the body is created, the soul is created as well. This is a mystery that we don't understand. Um, it's a mystery that is, uh, that will be revealed to us perhaps, um, whenever God decides to reveal it to us. And maybe it's already been revealed to some saints that, but it, it hasn't been time for that to be revealed to everyone else. How exactly the human soul is, is conceived, um, whether it's in a, man, a manner analogous to that of the body or whether it's in a manner completely different from that of the body. Um, but we have the conception of the, we have the conception of the Virgin Mary as the beginning of the, the tangible beginning of, of our sal salvation, a, um, uh, the, the first step, which is why it's the feast, it's a feast of the church. This contradicts, of course, everything that our modern society tells us. It contradicts uh, the idea that um, well, you know, we all have, particular women have a right to terminate their pregnancies. It contradicts the idea that um, human life is, uh, uh, a human personhood, it only comes after birth or after the sixth month or after the seventh month, these debates that we have in the legislatures about, um, about when it's appropriate uh, for an abortion to occur. Of course, from the Orthodox perspective, it's never appropriate for, for an abortion to, to, to occur. Um, there's no such thing as uh, an abortion that's justifiable. Uh, and also from an Orthodox perspective, it's, it's, uh, it's considered to be a grave sin uh, that is, in fact, a, a type of murder. Um, and to the extent that it's happening in our society, of course, we have to understand that it is a grave sin. And it's something, of course, that we should never choose for ourselves or for our children, obviously, because this is what it, we're really talking about is this is a choice that a mother makes for her child. Um, that, that, of course, violates the, the most precious relationship between mother and child, the most intimate relationship known to human beings. Um, and so there's, there's no, uh, so it's happening in our society. We don't choose it. But at the same time, we have a responsibility to enlighten those around us and to protect the unborn. So many people say, well, it's the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholics are the ones always protesting outside of Planned Parenthood. Or they're the ones going on the march, uh, what is it called? The March for Life in Washington, D.C., uh, this isn't an Orthodox thing. We're wrong. It is an Orthodox thing, more than it's a Catholic thing. The Catholics are doing it, and we're not doing it. We're, they're putting us to shame. Um, because as Orthodox Christians, we live in a polity that we should care for. We shouldn't live detached from our polity. We shouldn't live detached from our polis. And... Um, and, and we know that God doesn't just punish individual sins. He also punishes the sins of entire societies. 
And these sins affect us in that sense. And so even from a perspective of our own self-preservation, wanting to avoid the punishment that this type of behavior inevitably brings in one form or another, we should, of course, do something about it. We should also do this out of charity to those who are really hurting themselves, uh, the mothers, and especially for those that are being that are most vulnerable. So we have a duty to, of course, take all legal means. I'm not obviously advocating extreme measures, but all legal means um, to protect the, the unborn. It's, it's a sacred duty and a sacred calling for Orthodox Christians. And of course, everyone does what they can. Obviously, not everyone can, can, can uh, uh, you know, go on marches or fight legal battles. Uh, but whenever we can speak the truth, we should speak the truth. Um, I don't want to, you know, last week we said that this was, this was going to be more discussion than lecture. I know I've, this is kind of a long introduction, but um, I just want to invite anyone who has anything to add or to ask questions to what I, regarding what I said to feel free to jump in um, and say something. Maybe once in a while we could kind of, uh, after we discuss a question or, or a topic, we could kind of regroup like this and ask for questions or for comments. Yeah, Vasily. So I just have um, some thoughts and maybe a question on, yeah. uh, you were talking before about the Immaculate Conception. Yes. Um, and then just referring to what St. John Maximovich was talking about. Yes. Um, and uh, I just have some notes here that like to just read quickly. So sure. I was saying that uh, the teaching of the of her immaculate conception denies all of her virtues. Uh, yes, she was pur uh, purified at conception. So my question is around the word uh, purified, and um, so he's saying that she wasn't purified at conception, uh, but she was pure. Right. So. Um, was that, uh, just to get some clarification on that, there wasn't an external purification, but uh, she was pure um, through, uh, through her being, like how she uh, lived? Yeah, so this is, uh, of course, this is addressing the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, the question of the Immaculate Conception I mean, first it has a couple, we'll take, we'll break it down into its parts. The question of how the Theotokos was conceived. The Theotokos was conceived biologically in the normal manner. However, we do know that it was also miraculous because her parents were elderly and they shouldn't have been able to conceive normally uh, at their advanced age. Um, but uh, of course this was, uh, this miracle had occurred multiple times throughout the history of Israel, where God intervened and restored the fertility of the parents, and in particular of the mother, in order for holy men to be born. In this case, this is, of course, the, the flower of the entire Jewish race, is the Theotokos. Um, but she was conceived in the normal manner, meaning that she has a biological father and a biological mother. Um, secondly, since she was conceived in the normal manner, but more importantly, since she was a, a descendant of Adam and Eve, like all of us, uh, through her conception, she also inherited what we inherit from Adam and Eve, that is our mortality the ancestral sin. The Theotokos was not, we know from the, from the tradition of the church, that the Theotokos was not, um, did not commit sins herself. She lived an entirely pure life through ascetical effort. Through ascetical effort, she avoided sin her entire life. However, because she is a descendant of Adam and Eve. She did have, she did inherit the mortality. So the, the, the question of, 
of the Roman Catholic doctrine versus the Orthodox understanding of this also hinges on the understanding of what exactly is original sin or ancestral sin, whether it's a particular guilt or whether it's the consequence of what Adam and Eve, uh, of Adam and Eve's sin, right? And in the Orthodox tradition, we understand, in the Orthodox church, we understand this to be the consequence of, uh, of, of their sin. So that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they, they broke the commandment, the one commandment that God had given them, which was to fast. The purpose of that commandment was for them to obey, and through obeying, to join their will to God's will. And St. Maximus teaches us that that's the first step towards union with God, is the union of wills. Um, and so through the union of wills, they would have ascended into higher levels of, of sanctity and contemplation and would have indeed been given a share of God's divinity, deified. Uh, so the serpent, that's why the serpent is called, the, is the Satan who was the, in the serpent is called the deceiver and the um, well, diabolos, the um, the uh, the, the, the person that um, slanders, the slanderer. Um, what happened when they sinned, their soul became disconnected from God. And so the soul receives its life from God. And so the soul died. Of course, the soul continued to exist in a con conscious state. Um, but the death of the soul of separation from God that separation from God created internal fragmentations within the soul, which we, we experience as passions. And then that, those fragments entered also into the body and we had the fragmentation of the, the soul from the body, which is our biological mortality, biological death. And so in other words, the, the sin of Adam and Eve uh, caused us to die. And because we die, we sin. Um, and so all of human history, as we know, it was put into motion right there from that act. And the consequences of that sin were passed down. We can use the modern word genetically. We, we understand DNA. The ancients had a sufficient understanding of, you know, uh, human uh, genetics, not in, they didn't understand DNA, but they understood exact, they understood roughly how things work. And so it became encoded, let's say, in our DNA, uh, and it, we've inherited this mortality. So the Theotokos, of course, is from our same stock. She's, she's a human being, human being just like us. Uh, and, <coughs> excuse me, she inherited the same. And so St. John Maximovich says that this idea that she was immune from this actually diminishes her. The Roman Catholics have such a high regard for the Theotokos, but that regard is slightly off. They have such a high regard that they could not bring themselves to admit that she had any type of participation in this. And, um, but as St. John points out, they're diminishing her because they're diminishing her ascetic effort because she actually strove to remain pure. And, you know, at the beginning of, the, of this book, we have this quote from St. Ambrose that says that the Theotokos is the pattern for all, for the life of every Christian. Mary's life is a rule of life for all. That's only possible if she shared, if she shared in the same circumstances as us, right? If she didn't share in the same circumstances, then it's not something that we can imitate ever. So there's that problem. The Theotokos then becomes something inaccessible, someone unaccessible whose life is completely different from ours. And there's a question as to whether it's relevant then, right? Uh, but then there's also a diminishing her because she also exercised her will and she cooperated with God freely, both in her own spiritual life and in her, um, in, her, in her consent 
to be his mother. So the Theotokos also exercised her will and she had virtues that she acquired and cultivated. Um, right? And then of course, when she chose to be, when she, when she obeyed God and, and, and consented to being his mother, she, through, with her own will actually, contributed to our salvation. So our salvation is a product of the combination of divine and human wills at multiple levels. Uh, the combination of the divine will with, uh, with the Theotokos, and then in our Lord, the perfect, the perfect combination of the divine and human wills, because we know that our Lord had two wills, human and divine, that were united, but not confused, distinct, but they always cooperated. Right, so there we have the perfect union. Um, so it's, it's a very important topic. Um, this is uh, for anyone that didn't get a chance to read the first chapter. It's covered on pages 10 and 11. Um, the heterodox teaching, which is, the, of course, the Latin, the Roman Catholic teaching of the Immaculate Conception. Um, the, uh, of, of course, the one Immaculate Conception that did occur, if, as we said earlier, was that of Christ at the Annunciation, right? When, when he, he was not conceived in the, norm, in the biological manner, but he was conceived miraculously. He entered into the Theotokos and took on flesh from her. Uh, and he did that all willingly through his own will. He was, of course, uh, sovereign, right? The, the, word of, the sovereign word of God who d descended into her womb and united himself to us through her. Um, Right. The Theotokos also at the end of her life manifests her, um, the fact that, you know, she was just like us, she died, just like we die. Uh, there's that quote from St. John of Damascus on page 11. O pure virgin sprung from mortal loins, thine end was conformable to nature. Right. So there we have the connection, sprung from mortal loins, meaning from the descendants of Adam and Eve who were mortal, who had mortality. Um, and thus her end was conformable to nature. She, you know, she, her life was, had a biological end, her biological life. Um, of course, we, we know that from, again, from the testimony of the saints, that the Theotokos resurrected. Uh, we might say that she's the first fruit of the general resurrection. The general resurrection, of course, is the resurrection of all. We, we say that at the end of the creed. Um, and so she's the first fruit and ascended into heaven, ascended uh, into the heavenly realm. And so that's, that's what we celebrate at the Dormition, is the death, resurrection, and ascension. This is why in Greece it's often called the Pascha of the summer. Right? The Pascha of the summer. Does anyone have any other questions or comments about anything that we talked about so far? Uh, Basil, you had something? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, just a second question. Or, yeah. um, if I can get your thoughts on this. So sure. it seemed like there was a very big emphasis on um, on keeping uh, any kind of like unpure or uh, bad things away from the Theotokos. So there's a very big emphasis on that. Yeah, um, that's, that's very important. We, we know that the Theotokos had um, an exemplary upbringing. The exemplary upbringing, of course, has to do with her... Uh, the fact that she lived in the temple. St. Gregory Palamas, uh, his two sermons, which you might, I might just scan them and share them with everyone because they're incredible. Um, on the entrance of the Theotokos, talks about how she was, 
She lived in the Holy of Holies, which is a big deal. Because the high priests would only go there a few times a year. Um, and then she was fed by an angel. In the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies is an image of multiple things. First of all, of her, because there's the mercy seat, right? The ilastirion. Um, we say uh, there's a hymn, uh, the mercy seat of the world, ilastirion to cosmo. Right? We call her the ilastirion um, in the canon for the Akathist, which we sing in the Greek church. We sing it on Fridays at Great Lent. Um, so there, it's very appropriate because many things inside the, inside the Holy of Holies, actually the Ark of the Covenant itself, um, all symbolized her. So it's the, the symbols together with the, the reference, the, the, the referend, the, the, the person being re referred to. Um, but it's, but it's, a, it's another image. The Holy of Holies is an image also of um, detachment from worldly things. Because the only way that we can actually achieve our salvation is if we detach our soul from material things, which does not mean not to care. It means not to have an impassioned relationship with the world, a passionate relationship, not to let the, the passions govern our relationship with other people and our things. God gave us all these things, gave us other people, gave us all of our things, but the passions distort our relationship. And so the Holy Fathers talk about detachment. We detach so them. So that explains where, um, in my note here, where it said, there's a great emphasis on permitting nothing common or unclean to pass through right. Mary. So, so the, the, we detach ourselves and then we protect our heart from the, from the passions and from the, the unclean thoughts. And the, in the same way that we protect our inner life, we have to protect, of course, the children that are dependent on us and, and protect their inner life. And the Theotokos, in withdrawing into the Holy Temple, the Holy of Holies, is an image of this, or an example, actually, not just an image, an example of this, uh, where she was completely um, detached from the world, did not have an, a passionate relationship, a relationship governed by passions, with the rest of the world, and thus did not allow anything unholy or impure uh, to, to enter. The only thing that she focused on, according to St. Gregory Palamas, was the readings that she heard during the rituals of the temple, which are readings from the Holy Prophets, from especially from Genesis. St. Gregory says that she was struck by what happened in the Garden of Eden. And as a small child prayed for the, for the human race to be restored to its original glory. Um, this is something that as a, as it made a big impression on her. Um, and, you know, we might say, well, you know, when we have children around, my daughter, she's downstairs, for example, you, you know, she's, she hears different things and, and she might hear something from the lives of the saints. And for us adults, because we're, I don't know, where, where the world has numbed us, right? So we're not as sensitive to these spiritual things. Um, you know, the child might hear something and take it really to heart. Um, with Teotokos, all the priests and the high priests and the kings and the, the rulers and the rabbis of ancient Judaism were in the temple and they knew these by heart. They knew these readings by heart. They didn't have to read them, but they read them, of course, at the ritual, because that's what the typicon of the temple was. And they read them in the synagogue. Uh, it didn't affect them. It affected the small child. And that child, that effect that it had on the child's soul, um, opened the door to, sell, to the salvation of us all. Right? Those are the, those are, it's, it's, it's really um, profound. Um, the upbringing of the Theotokos and by extension, the upbringing of, of all children, because we might say, well, how does that apply to us? Well, we don't know what God wants for our children. Our children, God may, may have in store. Of course, the next generation of clergy has to arise from our children. 
right? And we don't know what our, uh, um, rather, we must assume, let me say it this way, we must assume that we have a duty to provide the church with parents for the next generation of children and with clergy. And uh, the, the example of the Theotokos can apply very directly to the example of the future clergy who could be struck by the reading of the life of a saint or by the, the reading of scripture. And it might influence their entire life and lead to the salvation of other people. Lead to the salvation of other people. It's not just, I bring up my child in order for her to be successful, in order my daughter to, to have you know, a, a prosperous life. I bring her up also so that she can make a difference in the lives of other people um, and, and, and help other people, her children, if God gives her children, um, her family, her spiritual family, her fellow parishioners, help them to salvation, to, 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 uh, to reach their salvation. Um, there was one thing that I did want to say about the conception before we only have a few minutes left. Right, Maria, we're ending at around 8.30. Maybe we'll go to about 8.40 because we started late. Um, and um, it says on, on page nine, the hymn by uh, St. George, Bishop of Nicomedia, he who supports all things with his word, in his mercy has hearkened unto the prayer of righteous Joachim and Anna. He has loosed them from the anguish of barrenness and given them her that is the cause of our joy. This is another big problem that affects our society, and that is sterility. Um, and those of you that are doing anything connected to the medical profession may have read some, many studies. You, you could look it up on the internet. Uh, sterility is uh, really affecting humanity more than any time before. And... Uh, some researchers have connected that to our way of life and to the things, the chemicals that we're exposed to on a daily basis, so on and so forth. Um, and of course, there's an entire now industry of helping people conceive. Um, and the most extreme, of course, is the uh, in vitro fertilization, which we should know is not accepted by the church in particular because of the fact that multiple, there are multiple embryos involved, which we know conception is the beginning of human life. What happens to those embryos? Is it ethical to even freeze those embryos to be used, quote unquote, later? And then what happens to them when they're not used, right? They're destroyed, which is abortion. Um, also, the other part of this is the way in which uh, the the sin involved, let's, let's just be direct, the sin involved in the conception, the way that the genetic material is, is gathered from the father. Um, and so it's possible. God has allowed this to occur. However, um, we have to know that it, it is not something that the Orthodox Church um, accepts. Of course, children born from this are... A, of course, embraced by the church. This is, a, this is uh, so something that we don't question. But that's not my main point. My main point is, God is hearkening to the prayer of Joachim and Anna. The church, even before these scientific methods that are bioethically questionable, even before that, had remedies. Remedy is prayer. Um and prayer works. And further, all of us who want to have children should strive for our children to be the fruit of prayer. God has connected in his providence um, bodily pleasure, of course, to the conception of human beings because he knew that most human beings, when they would figure out what it takes to raise a child, would have nothing to do with it, right? So this is providential that God has implanted this in our body and it's in and of itself, it's not evil. In and of itself is not, is not sinful. Of course, if it's in marriage, um, 
However, our children cannot merely be the fruit of passion. They must be the fruit of prayer, especially if we want to protect them in this new world that we live in, 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 the, in, the, in the world of, we'll just be direct again, the post-Christian world. Um, and so again, the conception of the Theotokos needs to give us, is a model for us. It needs to give us hope, both for those who are struggling to conceive and those who desire to conceive and to be parents, to have children. Um, our children must be the fruits of prayer um, because from their beginning, then they're protected. From their beginning, they are, we have divine grace. Um, and, and there are many, many temptations out there that are aimed, especially in our society, aimed directly at children. And we need as much protection as we can. And then he says, he has loosened them from the anguish of barrenness. Another thing that we have to, this, this little hymn teaches us is that the children that God gives us, God gives us those children. Um, barrenness, fertility, having children, not having children. Today we're decide, we, we say that, well, this is a matter of choice. And to a certain extent, it is a matter of choice. Obviously, it, we, we, we cooperate with God, which means our will is involved as well with God's will. But at the same time, God gives, right? We don't take. God gives, um, and we have to have faith in God's providence, that God has given exactly what we need for our salvation. Some, to some, he has given many children because that's the only way, or that's the best way for them to be saved. For others, he's given, to others, he's given few children because it's through those few children or for the, to the one child, that they will be saved. To others, he has given no children, because it's, uh, it's without children that those people will be saved, either as married people who cannot conceive, or, uh, or as monastics who, of course, are dedicated to um, uh, virginity and chastity, uh, and celibacy, rather. Everyone should be chaste, but virginity and celibacy are for monastics. Um, and so everything is, we have to put things in perspective. Uh, the, the messaging out there is exactly upside down. Um, and finally, we have the cause of joy. So he has loosened them from the anguish of barrenness and given them her that is the cause of our joy. Children are the cause of joy. It says that our Lord says that uh, obviously uh, giving birth to children is very painful for the mother. Um, but the, the, all that pain is forgotten because of the joy of bringing a man into the world by the mother. The mother forgets the pain. Doesn't exactly forget it. He forgets it, but it's the joy of bringing a person into the a new man or a new woman into the world, uh, a new human being, is so much greater than the pain. Um, similarly, here we have the Theotokos, the birth of the, the conception, and then the birth of the Theotokos, um, who brought joy not merely to her parents but to the entire human race. Um, so, I guess we could spend the last couple of minutes here uh, with some more questions. We'll take another break from. Uh, some of the topics, and if anyone has any questions or comments on what we just said, what I just talked about, you're more than welcome. Um, I do have yeah. one. Um, I have to agree completely on how God allows certain people to have so many kids or not none at all. Um, for an example, my aunt and my uncle They've been married for, I believe, about 10 years now and were not able to conceive. Mm -hmm. So they ended up actually adopting these two other kids from a really, really troubled family, mm -hmm. raised them. They were both siblings. And now, like 10 years later, they finally have their own kid. Yes, that, that happens many times, actually, because 
the presence of other children in the house uh, actually then, I don't know how, how, to, how it works actually biologically, but um, uh, from my wife knows a couple of families that are, that, that, where that's occurred, where it's actually restored the fertility of the parents. Um, you know, this is of course providential, but it's also biological, right? Uh, God, of course, works through our, our biology. Um, and of course, adoption is a high calling. Uh, adoption is something that is, um, it's perhaps the highest, one of the highest forms of charity. Charity, not in, not merely in the sense of, you know, giving money to the poor, but charity in the sense of selfless love, taking someone in. It's a very difficult thing and it's a high calling and it's a huge blessing. And, um, those who can do it are very blessed by God. And again, it's a calling though. So some people, God calls to be saved in this manner. So there's a variety of diversity of ways that we can be saved, that God opens us, but we have to be open to it. We have to open up our heart. We have to, op we have to open up ourselves to God. The, when we try to control and be ourselves, to control our future, and become self-reliant. This is where we stumble spiritually, and this is where many of the psychological disorders that affect our, our people in our society come in. Um, when we're trying to control, when we're trying to to dominate, to be our own master. But when we put ourselves in, in the place where we belong, which is a very exalted place, right? When we allow ourselves to fit in God's plan, subordinate to God, but cooperating with God. Um, then we have a lot of blessing and we have peace. We have inward peace. Uh, Leonidas? Yes. De keep Deacon Leonidas. <laughs> um, now I'm going ahead of the story, yeah. but when you said that the theotokos, the things had to be, um, like all impure things had to be removed from her. Yes. Did you make that statement earlier? I, I immediately, for some reason, thought of um, like after Christmas, after the nativity of Christ, where they, um, the flight to Egypt, when they arrived in Egypt, Christ had that tree that the pagans were worshiping, had the demons in it. Mm -hmm. He had the demons removed from that tree and that tree then became blessed. And then um, the idols of Egypt fell. Mm -hmm. Could that pertain to like uh, her own son, Christ, our Lord um, removing for himself as well, all things impure and for his mother? Well, of course, I mean, for, first of all, for us to have a relationship with God, any type of relationship with God, we have to, we cannot be inwardly impure. This is how we. This is how our link to God is destroyed. Uh, God withdraws from that, um, chiefly because the impurities we become attached to our impurity. And we don't want God, um, and so um, it's always about God. It's always about Christ. Um, but of course, God coming into the world is the light, right? That. Uh, he came to darkness, and he he shone light within darkness. Those that that idea is not merely he you know he he flashed forward light the light of the transfiguration to his apostles, but he also flashed light in the darkness of the world, and as a consequence of his coming, uh, the pagan idols fell, not all at once. In some cases, there were you know examples of saints going into temples and praying in the, in the and the, uh, the statue is crumbling, right? Uh, but what we're really talking about is the conversion of the world to Christianity, in particular, the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christianity, which happened over a period of 300 to 500 years. By the, by the year 500 AD, the most, most Romans were actually Christians. Um, but it's the liberation of the human race from its errors and the liberation from its slavery to the demons and to its worship to the uh, to the demons 
uh, all of that. So when Christ, uh, the, the Holy Family went to uh, Egypt, right? Uh, there's, th this was a sign of what was to come because eventually Egypt became a Christian land, the land of the pharaohs of all places. The land that in scripture is identified with sin became a very holy Christian land. Its deserts became cities with holy monks and saints, right? The, the cities all along the Nile have hundreds of martyrs um, that sanctified their land. Um, and, you know, in, today in Egypt, the, um, the real Egyptians are Christians. The, the Muslims are from the outside. Um, Islam came from Arabia. So I think we're um, at, our, uh, at the end of our session today. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, we'll continue. I guess we'll, we'll, I think we should take things in order. So we didn't get to talk about the nativity as much today. We'll talk about the nativity and then add one more chapter to it um, so that we can uh, progress through our book.